Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, Ben Myers, here with the one, Stevie C. Hello, good sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, we, look at that leg brace you got we, on there. Uh, we have a fractured ankle here, Ooh. so but it first? will not impact my performance on the podcast this afternoon. It impacted uh, your speed in getting here and <laughs> your ability to get a haircut, I see. But <laughs> yes, the, the hair that. is a little out of control, but I did have a developer say that they saw my Instagram photo and they liked the long hair. Okay. Yeah. It actually is nice. I think you should just shave the sides so you have more of a mullet. On I the was, back, I was thinking going a little hockey here yeah. a little later uh, later in the summer I'm a to fan. Do see it. how that works out. Anyways, 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 <laughs> people who like nice. mullets and this podcast will also like our podcast sponsor, Nizo Studios. Nizos, who are they? Nizo is the award-winning Nizo Studios. It's a premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit NizoStudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling, taking the building's industry sales process by storm. Wow, that might have been your best performance yet. Uh, you know, you're, you're you showing know? off though. We have yeah, we have a couple is... guests. We have a, a great guest and his wife here too. That's a first. And the two, dog. Two dogs. We have two dogs here. Two dogs here. Two dogs here. They're showing off for the dogs. So why don't uh, why don't you read the bio <laughs> of our guest there, Steve? Oh, it's so boring. No, no <laughs> boring. I spruced it up a little bit for you. <laughs> Thank so, God. Uh, I want him to read it though, because that radio voice is just ridiculous. I'd like Pull to out of here. <laughs> I'd like to talk about that voice a little bit. Well, you haven't heard my radio voice yet. Right? All right, all right. I guess we all, we all have a chance. Today's guest was born and raised in Toronto and earned himself a Bachelor of Engineering from the Queen's University <laughs> in two thousand. Following school, he took a corporate role with TELUS. Well, at TELUS, James had an itch to get into real estate, so he began raising investor capital and and acquiring pre-construction condominiums, semi-detached units, and detached properties. In 2008, James left TELUS. (laughs) <laughs> to pursue real estate development full-time and founded Percy Ellis Development Group. James' key skills include value acquisitions, equity and debt raises, investor relations, multi-unit design, municipal zoning and Ontario building code compliance, and has translated those key skills to over 20 projects to date. But why he listen to me when we can listen to him himself... James Burton, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. And uh, all right, you're on par then. Yeah, on par, on par with. <laughs> I, would have, I would have accepted like a like a six out of ten. Well, yeah, no, 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 it. nailed it, nailed, nailed it? it. Yeah, both of you. You know, appreciate just it. different styles. That's all. <laughs> just different styles. Thanks for having me, both of you guys. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for being here. Okay. It's nice to see you back in in real life in I person. No more yeah. Zoom. We had a couple. Uh, Zoom podcast about three, I think three previous to this, and it's just it's not the same. No, you don't get the vibe. And what about the uh, video? Are we getting is there a camera somewhere on here floating around? Yeah, we is got it? Ed. Ed's on the scene. Yeah, Ed's not only sound. Oh, Ed does video. Good, He's good. good. Okay. Yeah, you get you portrait mode on the Apple phone. Like it's nice. The, zone, the, <laughs> the drone's gonna come buzzing around any minute now. Just like <laughs> we 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 actually are going to do some videos with the award winning Nizo Studios in Ooh, the future. Yeah, we are. And are we? Uh, throw them up on uh, on YouTube. The YouTubes. You awesome. Know? Would love to. So get, uh, a picture's get, worth a thousand words. Yeah, get right, the guys? kids interested. I mean, this hair will probably get us at least a hundred views. I actually, <laughs> I actually asked uh, Nikki if we should 
do like a live or not a live, but do a str- stream it on on YouTube as well. And she said, nah, "It's a lot of work, and I don't think your crowd's big enough yet." <laughs> nice. <laughs> we're niche. It's yeah, like we're niche. the enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, very, niche. <laughs> very niche. So you just came back from your cottage. Yeah. Came down with your wife. First stop in. Yeah. Podcast recording. That's right. You How's know, it? part of a pretty insane day actually it was oh, like yeah? just up early, back to back to back to back. I, I just felt like I was in a little time warp and then it was like up you know and into the car in a rush and then here just in time and then boom here we are and yeah Yeah. speaking of time warp why don't we go back in time (laughs) (laughs) segues segues i didn't even (laughs) practice (laughs) so queen's university you're graduating you're an engineer Take it from there. Take us to give Oof. us the give us the career arc. Oh, hold on. First of all, born and raised in Toronto, right? Good Toronto boy, Lee Side. No, no, nope. not a Fergus boy. Yeah, oh, Fergus. Yeah, I was wow. actually born in Ottawa. Okay, well yeah. then maybe my uh, your my crack in- research team has failed you. Yeah, I was born in Ottawa and kind of like when I was really young, jumped around as a, to a few different Ontario um, towns and ended up in Fergus for my entire childhood. And it wasn't until after Queens that I went straight to Toronto. Oh, okay, so yeah. I was way off. Bit Ben's off, a good golf boy. I don't know if you knew yeah. that. Guelph, Ontario. No. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Great place. It's nice. Nice little town. But, uh, you know, I had to come to the big ship, swim with the big boys, you know, <laughs> after a while. You must have looked down on us Fergus boys, too, you know? Like, what are, who are those hicks, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, those, <laughs> these are the hockey guys and lacrosse guys all came from Fergus. All these scary yeah. dudes from Fergus. <laughs> scary dudes working on it, the yeah. farm, these jacked up muscles. Yeah, yeah. You know, like fighting in the schoolyard. Yeah. You know. Sounds awesome. So, yeah, so off to Queens. Yes. Took an engineering. What, yeah. You were in what kind of engineering? Electrical and computer okay. and ended up specializing in telecom. And that's yeah. kind of where my first job at TELUS came from. Yeah. Um, you say you were going to be a corporate guy. You know, you, you, the the dream when you're in university is to get one of those coveted jobs right, right. out of school, right? Mm-hmm. So that was its own little accomplishment. But I knew from the beginning I was going to exit into some kind of real estate endeavor from from when I was 16, actually. So got to rewind a little before Queens to get to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a book called The Wealthy Barber. Oh, yeah. That really, there's a, just a chapter in there. It's one chapter, but it kind of just explains leverage and the concept of leverage and how you can utilize it like in the most basic of ways but they don't teach you that in school and I kind of just latched onto that and I went like doesn't everybody know this like is everybody doing this because this seems like the way to you know invest your money or or invest your time and so it kind of stuck with me all through university and uh, I went down to see some some people speak I barely want to mention the name but Trump before he was, you know, the disaster. Uh, <laughs> there's the controversy you were looking for, Steve. Um, I, I'm okay. I saw Trump speak in New York. Yes, in 2018, war- and oh. it was amazing. Nice. I don't okay. regret it. It was. It was. What, I, what went, you I, went to, I went to the opening of Trump Toronto. Yeah. I was like literally two inches away from him when he walked by and he was doing an interview. Yeah. But he wasn't an exciting speaker that night. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was really exciting in 2000. It was. Four or five, I can't remember, World Wealth Expo in New York. And uh, and also who was there, like Kiyosaki, Robert Kiyosaki, and Tony Robbins, lots of these guys. So this was just like a theme throughout school. I, I also raised a bit of money from some of my friends' dads uh, to invest in some student housing in Kingston. But, you know, it was kind of shaping up. And then I got a opportunity to do a semester in Sydney. I thought, oh, I'll do it. I'll just manage it from there. And everybody pulled out. Oh, uh, yeah. So, like, <laughs> Makes sense. You know, I chose the, the time away uh, then. So, 
as soon as I got the job at TELUS, I kind of knew I would pursue real estate. And yeah, I um, bought a bank sale from Scotiabank. That was, it was, a, it has a bit of a history um, of some, well, you know, business activities going on in this house that uh, ended up having, <laughs> you know, the bank foreclose on it because there was some illegal activity going on in it. And uh, that was like my first flip. And I kind of did that one by myself. Um, without really hiring any trades, just learning the different trades at Home Depot. There's a book called Home Depot 123. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it on the shelves no, there. No. You, it's a thick hardcover book and it teaches just everything you could possibly need to know about building a house. Wow. Really? Uh, and I would just go page by page and read it and do the plumbing and the tiling and the toilet installs, bathroom, roof, soffits, eaves troughs, uh, the whole nine yards. Wow. Just and, and that was what I was doing after work. Uh, for half a year and um, yeah that was my start I thought I should learn this stuff and then when I'm managing this in the future I'll understand the intricacies of the trades and, and, that, and that so how long into being at TELUS did you realize I think I was meant to be in real estate well, it was about 18 months yeah. and um, you know I asked for a raise that was going to keep me there you know, there's always an amount of money to keep you around somewhere yep. and they just couldn't meet it. And I said, it wasn't much. It was like, it was less than $10,000, I think. Wow. And, uh, I said, oh, really? Like, cause I really can't stay if it's less. And I said, no, can't. And I said, okay, that's, I guess that's it then. Yeah. And that was the end of it. Yeah. And then you were on to, is this your next step? We moved up to, uh, your next, but your first big project, which was up North somewhere. Right. I think oh. that, that's quite the story. Yeah. That was so you know, at the end of that first one, though, yeah. was right when the financial crisis uh, in oh, seven and eight happened. And uh, I was sitting on this single family home that was done and losing uh, a few thousand bucks a month. And it was very stressful uh, at the time. And that's it was that experience of having to lower the sale price because of the financial crisis and then having to cover the cost of that during that time. So like you're you're forking out money and your value expectations decreasing yeah. and you're kind of like seeing all the money and work erode in yeah. front of your eyes. That's when I realized I really needed to think about like something in rental. And, right. um, so the next purchase was still a small project. It was just a duplex that I saw if I could add a wall here, a kitchen here, a bathroom here, I'd end up with three units. And, uh, then this way, if the value I expected at the end didn't materialize or if some economic crisis happened between now and completion, I could have the rental income and weather the storm and wait for the value to come back right. up to where I thought it would be. Um, that's what like changed everything for me was that kind of really small experience of the carrying costs on the first flip. Uh, so after I did that project, because the rental income from that one down on Duffer in 1297, Duffer's across the street from McDonald's, uh, panned out and turned a profit. I had some friends say, well, what are you doing? Like, can I put some money with you? And maybe you could do a few. And I thought, yeah, that's the plan. Like, so had some people invest. Um, I guess I got a little carried away with this strange opportunity in Kirkland Lake, the one that's that you're, was, you're talking yeah. about. Kirkland Lake. It's like, and like, I don't know, fate destiny is crazy too, right? Because at that time I was considering one in Miami, this like multiplex, and then one in Kirkland Lake. Like why I chose Kirkland Lake, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like the numbers penciled out a bit better, but it's like, couldn't you have factored in the lifestyle aspect? Yeah. Like, Kirkland Lake is... How far north tough, is that? It's a seven hour drive. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's the grind. Straight, like without a break basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that um, was unbelievable. It was, a, it was an incredible year of learning because everything I assumed I knew about real estate and was just different up there. And it kind of taught me this just one key thing that each local market is an entirely new beast. Mm -hmm. And all of your assumptions, even basic assumptions like labor costs, availability of labor, material costs, availability of materials, uh, government and how government interacts with you, people and how local people interact. All of this taught me like basically that my assumptions were all wrong. Everything was impossible. And, uh, you know, for a year, I, I kind of struggled to maintain the projects I was doing in Toronto and figure out this thing I had bought. This what 20- was it? What was it that you bought? It was a 22 unit apartment building. Okay. And it had like about 50% vacancy at the time of purchase. And the 50% of the people that were there were people who'd fallen on very hard times, you know, and they weren't, a lot of them weren't paying, um, or had other difficulties. And, some kind of stayed with us in the building and we helped fix up the units and some uh, left during the time that we were there and then we repaired a lot of the units but it was just it was just so much harder than we thought like we thought we would set up a construction team a property management team you know set it all up and then go back to Toronto and manage it and it would all be but none of these things existed there was no uh, it it was it wasn't so we had to kind of me and a my best childhood friend, um, Justin LeRiviere, we, we kind of really stuck it out up there, lived yeah. up there for a while, you know, slept in the basement, kind of on the floor, like hammers under our pillows type wow. of deal, you know, and, and we turned around and built something pretty great, but we were so exhausted and tired and dead and fearful by the end of it that we, we just, uh, kind of fire sailed it off market for a break even. And, and just kind of, that was the end of it. Um, but anyway, since then, the big it was like a huge experience for me because I never looked outside of our area in Toronto after that. I, no opportunity could be nice enough to entice me to exit well, basically you know. Ronsi, Junction, Corktown, Danforth, Leslieville, um, Dovercourt Village. That was it. I, I, I knew that I knew those markets and I was going to stay there and nothing was going to like entice me to look outside of my my core zones. Mm hmm. I, uh, I walked by, um, you know, one, 189 Sheridan and I see people take pictures of that, that property <laughs> all the time That's on, great. on, That's... on, on Twitter. Tell and us it... a little bit about that, that project. I think that one's one of your, that was one of your first ones yeah, too. Yeah. So maybe um, tell us a little bit about that one and the vision for that one. Sure. And are these people taking pictures of it cause they like it? Yeah. I think it's cool. Oh, like, they're like, how is this, you know, yeah. it's huge. What is it? What is it? I know what it is. Here we go. 189 Sheridan? Yeah, so 189 Sheridan. This Here we was go. a property. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. A tragic beginning, really. There was a fire and a death in the basement uh, of a, a young girl who couldn't escape because it was not built up to the standard. Anyway, that's a very tragic situation. Um, we didn't enter the picture until, like, well after that. But um, so it was, in, it was in a state of big time disrepair. And. Uh, we how did we buy it like earlier on in my career i guess why it says something about acquisitions and things is it was kind of like we would put a lot of offers out and a lot of unconditional offers at very low prices and for key assets but it was a bit of like a like throw them out of the wall see what sticks approach Mm -hmm. like which doesn't work in our at the scale of our business now but um 
so to go in unconditional on a on a property that had a fire and a death is something that almost nobody's willing to do, right? right. Because of the you you can let your imagination run wild as to the uh, liability that you're taking over. But if you kind of understand where the liability comes from, and you can limit what you think your exposure is, and that's what we used to do. And so that was how we acquired this like basically very prime property. Like at that time of purchase, this this type of thing at college and. Dufferin was like all the rage. That's where everybody wanted to buy property. So got in at a nice low price. Uh, it was a uh, two-story with a little illegal kind of converted attic thing. Blew the roof and attic off and basically put the two stories on top. Made a four-story on what was originally a two-story and then put five levels in an addition out the back, um, including the basement. So it kind of looks like, and we kept the side, the brick on the side. So it kind of like, you can see a giant metal L kind of like attached to fixed onto the top of this house. Um, and each floor is a unit and, uh, yeah, it's a perfect example of like infill missing middle, um, type of development that created five, uh, four, two bedroom units and a one bedroom unit. Um, really high demand, rented up quickly, uh, unusual, um, big metal decks in the back. So we're, every single unit has its own kind of deck out the back overlooking the city. Um, yeah, it's like a special little project. And for us, it was an, an, another crazy learning experience because it's sort of exiting the world of house construction, which is limited to three stories and entering the world of commercial construction, four stories or greater or more than I think it's 5,000 square meters. I can't remember. You enter part three of the building code, which has more rigorous requirements, uh, more rigorous studying, more rigorous engineering. And, and it was a, like a wake up call that, you know, it's not as simple as, Oh, I have a three story. I just throw a fourth story on that. Once you go from three to four new world. Yeah. It's a new world and it keeps a lot of people at three. And, uh, but it was great because it sort of at the same time as it presented all these challenges, we also realized that's ah, not that bad. You know, you can get through it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be really that afraid of it. I, just, I still remember the first time I walked by and, and saw your sign. I'm like, how could he possibly do this? <laughs> you know, you just don't think that's allowed because everything in, in neighborhoods just seems to be not allowed anymore. Right? And that was as of right. That's the, the strangest thing about that project. Wow. We did not get a minor variance for that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you, you mentioned in the beginning you raised, uh, you started, you were going to raise some money from your buddy's dads and then you were going to put some, some pals dough together. Talk, Talk to us a little bit about how that's sort of fueled your business and your growth and what kind of structures you put the, the, the money in, in the beginning versus what it looks like now. Yeah. So it's pretty simple. Um, I read all those fixer upper type of real estate, all, they were all American books actually at the time from like 2000, and 2000 to 2005. There was basically like no Canadian version of these like uh, how to invest in real estate, how to fix and flip real stuff, stuff like that. It's yeah. all American. But one was pretty simple. It basically said there should be somebody who puts in the money and somebody who puts in the work and you should split the profit, call it, you know, and that always stuck with me as well because it was straightforward and simple and it made sense to me. So... Um, when I first had the opportunity to kind of like realize I had the skill set to do this, I thought, well, I should put a twist on it and it should make it 5% of my money, 95% of somebody else's. And, and then we should split the the thing 50, 50, because 
you know, this whole skin of the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, yeah, skin of the game thing. So that's how it started. Our, our original projects were under that structure, 95-5, 50-50 on the profit share. Um, there was sometimes a pref, but it was like a pref with a catch-up. So almost every time it ended up 50-50 regardless. And actually in the very beginning, there was no pref. I didn't understand that concept at the beginning. Like my... Starting real estate comes from a very different background than somebody who comes out of finance or business. Uh, in engineering, you're, you don't really have that side of your skill set isn't there for that. You just think of the mechanics of how things work. And, right. and so I always came at the approach with investors and the financial side very mathematically and mechanically. And it took me a while to figure out, oh, there's norms and this is the way it's done. And I kind of tried to avoid those thinking and, and just stick to the the simple stuff. So, you know, over time, bigger projects and things, so this pref thing's real. Yeah. You have to kind of like consider this whole yeah. preferential return thing and provide that. You, you, you have to, the skin in the game gets more and more important. Um, and, uh, and the split doesn't, you know, not everybody's okay with 50-50. You might have to make it 55-45, 60-40, 65-35. If people are providing their, their personal guarantees or big corporate guarantees, you might have to split another five off there. So uh, a lot of our structures shifted from 95-50-50 to 60-40, pref, and 90-10 on, on the equity. We've done that quite a few times. Yeah. Um, so if, if that was your yeah, question. Yeah, no, it's good. But, I mean, it, it gives a lot of, I think a lot of people who listen to this, this show, I mean, obviously there's a lot of developers out there and they talk sort of like super big, high level, you know, numbers, but a lot of, I think anyways, Ben could speak more to this of our listeners. A lot of them are students, real estate agents, mortgage brokers who are getting started and like own an investment property and may want to do another one, but don't have the cash to do the third or the fourth. And so how do they, you know, how do you put the money together? In most of the big developments, what are they doing now? 80, 20, 50, 50? I'm seeing it. So we, we, we've just got into the space and we've done a, we're looking at a lot of deals from an equity perspective, but honestly, every deal, it's, it's, it's not like the debt world where you sort of have your interest rate and your fee and your loan amount. It's sort of you're cutting a deal on a deal-by-deal -deal basis depending on who the developer is, who can provide the guarantees, where the property is, how much money needs to be raised. I mean, you could say your average deal is 80-20 with an 8% pref and a 50-50 split. I think that's sort of like the baseline in today's world, but I don't think there's many deals that get done that clean. You know, there's always a nuance in it. Sometimes, <coughs> you know, I've seen like a disproportionate share of the pref where one in, one group gets an eight and the other group gets the four. Um, obviously, the more capital the uh, investor puts in, usually the bigger, the, like the split may go in their direction. I'm sure you've seen that as well. Definitely. I've yeah. seen some of those deals where it's like one guy gets eight, then the next guy gets eight, then the next guy gets eight, then the next guy gets eight. And I'm like, catch up. And then it's, yeah. you know, Perry Basu. And, you know, it's all these big words. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know what? It's best to just know that if, if you can put it down in on paper or if you can understand it, if you can put it into a spreadsheet that kind of anyone can follow, that's the most important thing, I think. And it's not necessary to overcomplicate it all the time or think that it's more complicated than it is. You're simply looking at a projected end profit amount. Like, so with the whole structure, it's got to be, you know, relative to project size. You know, if you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands, then, you know, you got to split probably, you know, in, in one way, if you're talking tens of millions, you can split it a little bit differently, right, like, absolutely. because the dollar amounts are, are big. And, and so that's, 
you know, the little, the little projects are, it's really important to be fair as the investor, right? Like where we started, because there's not that much money going around and there's a lot of time investment. Um, so super project specific. So tell me about a bit, just sort of back to your story, the evolution of your business being Percy Ellis, like where, where did, when did Percy Ellis officially, when was it founded? Yeah. On what deal was it the first deal or did it happen over time? And I think you have a business partner or you had a partner or... (laughs) Yeah, have 50-50 on everything. Yeah. Couldn't do it without him. Uh, really happy I, I met him. And, you know, he's he's uh, he's half of the company in every single possible way. Okay. You know, I, I, he's just not out there as much networking and all that stuff. It's not his side of the business and it's not his preference either. Right. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great story kind of. Uh, well, he's the husband of my mom's best teacher friend's daughter okay yeah so the new spreadsheet on that the the moms would always say james is doing this emery's doing this you know you guys should get together help each other blah 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 so once one day he just was like the moms were like emery's gonna come over and help you paint so okay emery showed up painted with me it was amazing uh we did like a huge amount of painting in one day a month later I said, I'll tile a bathroom for you. Went over, tiled the bathroom for him. And we did that every little, like once in a while until we got to get to know each other. And yeah. and then I had, you know, he's he's 15 years my senior, you know, going on 50 years my now. He's, he's got three kids, a little bit of a different guy. I saw him as an investor at first. Uh, so, you know, come on, throw me some money. Like, I know you got more cash, like laying around here. <laughs> and... Uh, said okay like let me see this thing you got going on it was a property on Gerard and we went and uh, I don't remember exactly how this played out but I just said listen you can't go in it it's a bank sale it's got some mold it's all boarded up it's locked up TD's selling it like but you can go and walk the property and I'll meet you Tim Hortons so I sat at Tim Hortons he came over said Ah, I went inside. It's great. Let's do it. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, ah, I don't know. I kicked in a window or something. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's amazing. Okay. So he's like, you need, what, what is it you need? 50 grand? He's like, yeah, that'll top us up. So that was the beginning of uh, our professional relationship. And at the end of that project, it went well. It was just a year project. And we, you know, turned a, maybe a three times multiple on our equity or something like that. Not bad. Yeah. And, uh, he said, "Like, listen, I think I, I think I could be a good partner of yours." I kind of went, "Ah, like, I don't really need a partner. I think I'm doing all right." And he's kind of like, you know, he's got a corporate accounting background, um, you know, middle to senior management of a very like prominent Vancouver uh, accounting firm that was purchased, I, I believe, by Ernst and Young. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, and um, yeah, he didn't like the cult- culture of the new, bigger environment, so. He uh, he he came with this sort of professional corporate governance type of background that I didn't have, and um, so we, we we made a deal fifty fifty on everything fifty fifty on initial capital fifty fifty on just the whole everything oh, it was awesome. the easiest way to do it. There's just nothing we've ever done that hasn't been fifty fifty, and so and, and that the, was the beginning. Percy Ellis was born. Percy Ellis was born. I was living on Percy Street at the time. He was living on Ellis Park Road. I said, I don't want to quibble and on little things like names. Like, let's do Percy Ellis. He said, done. It took cool. us two minutes to decide on that. Cool. And uh, then off to the races, you know, we were. Um, 
the way that we uh, embarked upon like Bloor and River, which were our two kind of bigger initial projects, mm-hmm. it was simply what's out there, what's available. You know, Bloor was sort of this weird three property house, three houses on Bloor that wasn't selling. And I didn't quite understand why isn't this selling? You know, it looks like such a great location at Bloor and Dundas streets. Like I, and, uh, yeah, sometimes that happens, you know, you just happen to be the first person to pay real close attention to something and there's no reason it's not selling. It's just no one picked up on it. No one decided to have a closer look. And so we were able to make a deal on that. And River was off market. I was walking down. Hey, tell us about River. I'm always interested in that. I haven't been by it, but it looks like it's out of the ground and yeah. coming along pretty quickly. Almost done. Yeah. Like, but really that was, like, close I mean, to being done. When you bought that site, Broccolini wasn't there, I don't think. No. Anyways, Daniels had just sort of really started to take over the Regent Park area. Totally. And the stuff south on um, on Lower River was there, the urban capital stuff. But you guys saw something there, obviously. And how's that coming along? Well, I lived in the streetcar building, 510 King Street East before, and then I lived on Percy Street at that time as well. So, you know, take, it's kind of like, take advantage of your local area. Don't, you don't need to look outside. If you like where you live, that's probably indicates something, right? It probably means there's an opportunity there and that you know more about that opportunity than anyone else. Um, because you live and breathe it every day. So I knew that that little Corktown pocket was hot, just getting better and better and better. I mean, streetcar already been popping up little mid rises for the previous decade already there. So they were like, you know, really, and and I just kind of went, we could never buy around here though. You know, it was even expensive then, but river was definitely like when I first, when I sent some of the River Street investment packages out, I got some hilarious responses, you know, oh, yeah. like just like people who knew the old River Street yeah. and were like, like, how on earth could you possibly expect me to invest money in a project on River Street? <laughs> like stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. And, uh, right across from the, the ghettoist beer store of all time. Oh yeah. And just the history of that particular River Street site is pretty intense as yeah. well. Uh, so but how did, like, I was just on a walk. Apparently my wife tells me I was being an asshole and, and like I was like venting because she was like I was in a fight with her and I was on a walk <laughs> alone and then um, there was like a handwritten sign pinned to the fence in pencil like not even black permanent marker with a telephone number on it and this vacant piece of land and I called it and uh, there was like an, an uh, like a somewhat elderly lady I think who, who kind of answered and said yeah I'll give you the number of my daughter and you know you can talk to her. So I got that number called her and, uh, she kind of said something to the effect of it's kind of your lucky day because we've been trying to do something with this as a sibling group, as a family for quite some time. We're kind of just realizing not our thing. it's not for us. We can't really execute on it. She's basically said, so if you bring me an offer of 2 million bucks in the next, you know, short period of time, it's yours. And I kind of hung up the phone. I went, huh, interesting. So, she said there was another person floating around who had been kind of offering. She said, but if you do this, you know, it's yours. So I like hummed and hawed and I sent an offer in for one seven because I'm never going to just, you know, give the two. And she just immediately responded, said, I said two. <laughs> and I just went, no problem. <laughs> and that was it. That was, yeah. And, uh, so you gave her the two, just gave her the two right away. I just, I had a feeling, you know, I could tell the two is a good number. It wasn't, I was underpaying and there was no point in, in, in wasting this opportunity. So yeah, there's always a story like that to every little acquisition. They're not usually that kind of simple and easy. They're never actually that simple and easy, but 
you know, but then again, sometimes they are because that one was, you know. And so, and, and uh, so how was the uh, the approval process for that project? Another another gem. So you know, got me thinking. Real estate development was easy because <laughs> we had lovely neighbors, just wonderful people that were collaborative and transparent and honest and. You know, I even credit them for helping me and us as a company realize that transparency and honesty and is a valuable commodity in this process. Like that is what we, um, it's entirely our motto. Like that's the way we conduct ourselves now. Um, but it's not just like transparency and honesty. You have to, you really do have to genuinely care about the people around the development that you're working on. You, you have to look at it from their perspective. You absolutely cannot take the attitude of it's going to happen anyway, so you might as well jump on board and get used to it. Like I had that attitude very briefly uh, for a brief period of time earlier on, maybe when I was feeling frustrated with the process or feeling frustrated with other projects that weren't going well or who knows why. But and man, did I ever pay for that, hmm. for having that attitude, even if even if there was a sliver of truth in it in, a, in some kind of weird way it's you can't be like that you can't even feel that way if you do you you can't be successful you have to sort of recognize that you're going into a piece of property and it's an existing environment and there's a people that have lived there for maybe a little maybe a long um there's people that use the area and the lands around the lands and you're disrupting all that and you have to respect that and uh so the river street neighbors they were great. They helped us pursue the uh, approval, and that's why we got approved in, a, in about 12 months, which was pretty wow. unusual. Um, and we've worked collaboratively with them the entire process, the entire development. They've definitely had their frustrations with us. You know, construction comes along, and you're the developer making promises, and then your construction team, there's a disconnect because you're in contact maybe with your construction manager, but maybe there's a disconnect to the site, and someone forgot to loop in the site super of certain obligations, and then all of a sudden, you're not fulfilling your end of a bargain, and it can get complicated, mm -hmm. but if you care and you, you just kind of keep that line of communication open and you spend the money you have to spend to take care of those relationships, then you can have like a good relationship with the people around your development. And then in River Street, is that is the case. And I, I hope everybody feels that way, you know, that does live around there. And we're going to invite all of them into a party when it opens to meet nice. all the tenants and to see the units because I also feel like apartment buildings are they're like what's going on in there like who lives in there like, yeah. what, what, what kind <laughs> of, of units are in there it's 30 units okay it's gonna be 30 families or tenants or people that live there and there's already 50 60 families or people in the townhouses around it like they need to know each other they should know each other they right. should it shouldn't be this um owner tenant weird yeah who yeah. are you or you know are you do you want to talk to me or not we, we really want to try our very hardest to bring these people together yeah. so that it's just like any other neighborhood that's great i mean the other question i had about that one is you know you now you have like like steve mentioned broccolini selling condos 1100 bucks a foot but you also now have daniels has just occupied their evolve rental which is a you know giant new rental building by giant developer how do you think about competing against something like that is it that whole community-minded smaller boutique style versus a the kind of mega tower down the street yeah it's an interesting question we we really don't view any other developer as competing 
uh, with us. We just can't. It's too hard. You know, we have to help each other. We have to look to each other, for example, um, you know, collect data from each other, as you know better than anybody, Ben. Uh, Evolve doesn't, it's not a competition. We have 30 units. It's, you know, that's a very small amount of units. So there's always going to be a segment of the market that's looking for like a River Street style place to live and a segment of the market looking for an Evolve style of place to live. And there, there's some overlap, like a Venn diagram, there'd be a little overlap <laughs> there. But there'd also be like the sections where the people different. won't do that. They won't live in, Evolve, in, a, in a big, huge building like Evolve, and they, but they will live in a building like River Street. I, I think River Street is it's right on the cusp of the people who are completely against high rises and want to live in a neighborhood and have those neighborhood connections. And then the people that are just wanting a place to live close to downtown so they can go and be near all the exciting stuff. And River's really straddling those two worlds. So I'm actually really interested to see, you know, who does lease this, this particular building up, you know, is it going to be more like our, the triplex is off the beaten path that we've developed and leased up over the years, or is it going to be more like, um, you know, the people I lived with at the Thompson hotel or, or the people that I lived <laughs> with, you know, as neighbors at 510 King street East, or, you know, I don't know, it's going to be interesting, but I think it's going to cater almost to both crowds. To both, yeah. yeah. You got a mix of unit sizes there? Yeah, we have a mix or tending on the larger side. That's kind of been our history of um, larger units. You know, it's not very much production of larger rental units. So it's mostly two bedroom and three bedroom units. It's a few ones. So, uh, yeah, it's a mix. Interesting. Steve, what you got next? I'm just... uh sort of looking through some of the, the, the touch points here, but I guess I just wanted to go back because you made a comment. You said, you know, we, we did this and we kind of thought that development was going to be easy, but obviously through the <laughs> trials and uh, trials and errors, I guess, over the last 2012, 18, 24 months, like it hasn't been easy. COVID, I assume, has presented a lot of challenges for you. Um, navigating the entitlement process through COVID has probably been very challenging. Um, you know, what's your outlook on it now and how you, have you survived the last, you know, 18 months really at this point, I guess it's been 18 months, almost 16 months of, yeah. of the pandemic. Um, I, I don't want to get too cliche with my responses here. <laughs> I really don't, uh, yeah. got to do throw a couple out there though, because we have had good partners, great lenders, you guys being one of them really, yeah. right. Um, at being, uh, reasonable with extensions and uh, renewal agreements, knowing that lease ups that were intended to occur for us, the biggest entitlements is one thing. And it's been slow because the city got completely bogged down with their initial laptop technical issue, which mm. created the backlog and the backlog never really kind of was resolved. And so we've had lots of um, just like lacking responses uh, from the city. So that, that's been the entitlement issue, just not getting you know, where things were already slow, things just get getting slower. Right. But it's been tough for the city. I understand that they've been working hard to kind of resolve all those backlogs and things. And so instead of getting mad about that, we've sort of, well, then the other issue was lease up. Lease up was very slow, very seems. slow, very difficult. Just not a lot of volume, just not a lot of, you know, 
and, and a lot of people who were booking showings to look at units, a lot of like bargain hunters, you know, like knowing the reality of the situation and throwing out really low ball offers. And, you know, it's been tempting though, at some, some points to be like, Oh, let's just take this and yeah. get this thing leased and get it over with. We had, we were like, we, I knew from the beginning, there's absolutely no possible way we were going to do that. Yeah. So I knew we'd be in for some strange leasing, uh, like, uh, processes and we did hold out on everything. We never really cut our rents, you know, maybe a little just, but like we cut them in line with where we thought, let's say prior to COVID, they were actually inflated. They right. were like beyond what they should have been. We didn't cut them down below that to sort of cater to the temporary economic struggle right temporary economic conditions so but yeah that's that's tough because when a lender or other stakeholders like investors or other um interested parties in your project see you're not leasing or you know wow you're leasing at a rate that's even slower than anyone could have imagined um you know (laughs) this is uh they people can ask questions so we were I think we're a diligent group. Um, we all, we pay really close attention to our details in everything that we do. And I think over the years, that's given us some credibility in our decision-making. And ultimately we just had our partners trust us, believe in our decisions and kind of go with the flow. And, um, you know, if they had of all panicked any, like both our investors, our corporate loan guys or our mortgage loan guys any one of those three categories of stakeholders if they panicked it would have been a problem for us but kind of nobody did so they just stuck with you they just stuck with us and you know in the end we actually we've done a lot of good things we've acquired some new lands because of like covid kind of bridged the gap on a few things we had in the works from prior to covid Mm -hmm. um we hired some unbelievable new people uh ridiculous talent there's just been a ridiculous talent pool out there during covid so all like you know rotman mbas you know masters of real estate guys uh and girls and lawyers so our our staff's kind of ridiculous when it comes to qualifications what what are you up to on uh staff count head count somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or so yeah and um it's a lot of overhead yeah, it's it is. It's it's how a many, whole. How many how many nights a week do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that that overhead? <laughs> <laughs> You're lying if it, you don't say it's at least one. It's just once a month. It's once a month, right? <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it, it coincides with mortgages and other payments, you know. And yeah. so, yeah. once a month, you you know, we have a really good accounting, bookkeeping team system. We have cash flow statements which map out the next, you know, six to twelve months. So we're kind of like. We're trying to solve problems in the future now. Um, awesome. But listen, it's certainly, you certainly do. I, I, when I go to sleep, I don't wake up. So, but I, it's the middle of the day where I have that experience yeah. where I go, oh my God, that's our obligation, you know, yeah. this month or across our entire portfolio <laughs> or that's our, just like our corporate obligation. That's not even our project obligation. Like that's ridiculous. So yeah, but um, yeah, we manage and we're building the sort of revenue stream to support it. It's a it's a it's a pretty long process. Obviously, we had uh, you know Tricon on the show, and you know we're we're you know we're in 
five, six year projects, right? Yeah. So the yeah. the temporary, you know, decline in rental rates is not you know not scaring us too much. We think it's we think it's gonna bounce back. And I just ran the numbers for the latest national rent report by rentals.ca and Bullpen Consulting. Shameless plug. So the rent basically rent is back to where it was in January of twenty nineteen on average in the city of Toronto. So it went up fifteen percent mm-hmm. by the uh, between January of twenty nineteen and the end of twenty nineteen and yeah. now it's back to where it was at uh, in January 2019, there right? You go. So, yeah. so it's it's to think it's only back to 2019 after having this global pandemic. You know, really not too bad. And uh, and you know, I was looking at some articles from from Chicago. Soon as soon as people started getting that second shot, leasing went up through the roof in some of these new projects. So yeah. this one this one company was only anticipating doing you know 10 to 15 a month, and then they rented 140 in a single month in a yeah. new in a new project. They were just shocked, and they were like, "Well, we, this is too many. <laughs> we yeah. need to you know really Slow ramp up our 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 rental rate." So, um, but I guess maybe my next question is: We had Naram on the show. I'm not sure if you know uh, know Naram, and absolutely, uh, yeah. and great uh, guy. You know, one of his first projects was a mid-rise, and he said, "You know, I don't, I don't want to do these small projects anymore. I want to the move Mitchell on to residences. Big. Yeah, exactly, right, oh, yeah. right, right in my hood. And, and uh, you wanted to move on to larger. Is that is that your mindset? Are you going to keep small? Are you going to be, you know, the missing middle guy, or you 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 got any seventy-five story towers in your future? <laughs> um, our our two latest projects they are of a, a larger scale, you know, close to give or take a hundred units, give or take a hundred thousand square feet of GFA. Um, still really in neighborhoods, you know, new neighborhood like east end neighborhoods east of the east of the DVP that are. Um, you know, not seeing a ton of development, but should be, and they're very desirable places to live. Lots of green spaces. Um, they're commercial strips in need of population to survive. You know, there's been a uh, depopulation of neighborhoods in the entire city over the last few decades because of family sizes decreasing um, and not a sufficient amount of missing middle housing going into those neighborhoods. And the, the population decrease of these neighborhoods has caused the struggle for businesses along these uh, coveted little commercial stretches that make up the core of these beautiful neighborhoods. You know, you can I could name so many of them, but um, the population in these neighborhoods needs to boost up again in order for the businesses and those stretches that everybody loves so much, where the flower shops and meat shops and uh, financial uh, services, and it doesn't matter what it is, all those services that are able to survive and thrive on little stretches of small neighborhoods need the population. And population decrease has caused, for those of us now who've lived in the city for 10 to 15 years, when you move in for a couple of years, you don't quite see the um, rotating businesses. They're constantly going out of business mm-hmm. and coming, it's changing at a rapid pace in yep. these small neighbors. It's kind of scary. Once you've, you've been in a neighborhood for 10 years, you realize, wow, there's only a handful of businesses in this whole street here that have survived, survived for the long haul. And so the, uh, these two larger projects are still in these kind of small neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, but you know, back to your, to your point is they're of a scale that if we're able to, uh, section off 5% or so of these projects budget to inject back into the community in a way that is exactly what they want, not what we think they want, but by asking them and talking to them and seeing who's influential, who, who has the answers, surveying the communities, um, we can make a real difference and we can be like a force for positive change. And that's 
really, really important to, to the company, to me, to Emery. Um, my, both my parents died in the last couple of years and that's like a huge reason why I really kind of woke up and went like, what are we really doing all this for? Like, uh, what am I hiring people for? What am I chasing down these sites for and building these buildings for? What's the, what, what's the point here? And, and it just, you, you know, you dig and dig and then Emery and I talk and we, we definitely came to the conclusion that there has to be more to it than just financial gain. You can't just be doing all this to look at a uh, number on a, on a screen or on your phone that, cause that's really all the financial gain is. It's like kind of a number on your phone mm-hmm. and maybe some safety and security and things. And so we came to the conclusion that we have to be a force for good in the communities in which we build. We have to be listening to them, giving back to them. And, uh, then that motivated us to, I think, do better. And we're just like an extremely motivated group. And a lot of it's because of this shift in values. And, awesome. uh, and the scale increases. Yeah, it's really solely because of that. If I could keep doing triplexes, fourplexes, I know Emery would feel the same way. We'd love to. But we wouldn't be able to meet our new set of objectives. That's amazing. It's all about, uh, you know, in life, people always talk about the why. You know, why, why, do, yeah. you, why do you do what you do? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you go to work every day? And if you can answer that question and it's meaningful to you, it makes life not really seem, I mean, at least work anyways, not like a monotonous thing that you have to do. It's something that totally. you get, you, you're, you're, you're given the opportunity or the privilege to go and do every day. So it sounds like you guys, as a, you individually and as a company have answered that question. And I mean, only good things really can come from that. So I guess in one, on one hand, congrats. And on another hand, it's, Let's see what you guys have in store because it is exciting. Um, but you made a comment, and, and I know Ben and I, you know, we're we've said a, we've made a lot of um, we talk a lot about major uh, major avenues, uh, transport hubs, um, subways, bike lanes, sort of hot topics that we discuss. One topic that comes up quite often is. Uh, the Bloor Line east of Young. Actually, you could go the Bloor Line over to High Park as well. And you talk about all these like small businesses that just don't make it. And through COVID, especially on the Danforth, a lot of small businesses didn't make it. But even prior to COVID, there was tons and tons of these small small shops turning over. And you see it even in Bloor West. Yep. And I think what people kind of forget and miss is you know the reason why King West has become so vibrant and why those restaurants have been so successful is because there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people there like it's so dense what the Danforth is missing in my opinion is density especially near the transit stations uh I know you guys have a really interesting site on the Danforth you've done some cool art art uh art installments there I guess this is sort of a two-part question you know like what's your take on on the Danforth in particular or just sort of the subway lines and, and building on subway lines and then tell us a bit about your project on the Danforth. Yeah, that's fun. So <laughs> loaded. Yeah, it's fun too. It's great. Like it is small project. It's great. Little project. Um, it's, uh, yeah, right at Dawnland station. Yeah. So it's kind of prime 11 site. Yeah. Seven Eleven or right. store? Seven <laughs> Eleven. Right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I would Blog just, would write that. Historic 7-Eleven. <laughs> destroyed by graffiti. Yeah, a history of Slurpees. Historic yeah. yeah. uh, 7-Eleven destroyed by big, bad developer, James Burton. <laughs> <laughs> Out to the bottom line. Oh, yeah, totally, you know? So, 
you know, Danforth, sure, you can't, you're bang on there. You need, it needs density to support the commercial operations and for them to flourish and grow. And, you know, for those, um, all those neighborhoods, there's so many different neighborhoods along Danforth to, to thrive and survive. And I got to mention the, the population decrease again thing It's I think, uh, people who live in these neighborhoods because it's such a slow change. Uh, I don't think that everyone appreciates that factor and that, um, a small neighborhood of 10,000 residents decreasing to a neighborhood of 7,500 residents can make a material difference to the survival and revenues of the local businesses. And so, so are you suggesting that some of the small pockets on the Danforth are actually declining in population? Absolutely, in the in the neighborhood zones, in the yellow and belt. Is that because there's a family with four, three kids, and the kids move out, and the parents stay, and that's happening across? It's house happening to house? in thousands of neighborhoods across Toronto. All right. Yeah, oh. I think that's a. It's the average household size is decreasing, so um, it could be a bit of a, um, a fluctuating issue with sort of boomers in that but as a whole just Canadian families have decreased in size and also um, families have desired more space so you've got like bigger spaces and fewer people but the people living longer is another factor too yeah someone's staying in that house so they're 97 years old in the five bedroom house yeah you, you just don't have the they earned that come on <laughs> 95 <laughs> Three, four, four extra bedrooms. Come on, come on, come on, Gramps. Get a condo downtown. Live it up a bit. (laughs) Come on, Gramps. (laughs) Go to the Thompson rooftop pool. Yeah, exactly. But don't sue anyone once you're there because it's too noisy. Yeah, no one feels awkward and uncomfortable up there. Never. It's possible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the population decrease. You know, it's a real thing, and so. Danforth needs dense. I don't think anyone disagrees with that anymore at this point. I really don't. I think there's the odd... people living in the houses. Yeah, the there's... and the counselors. <laughs> well, there's there's a mix there. You know, we're seeing more and more reasonable uh, neighbors. We really are. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's our approach that's that's causing that. We're asking them how they feel about what's happening, what suggestions they might have. We're we are trying to focus the conversation on the people in and around the developments on what they need in general for the for the neighborhood and the, their community not like do you want to see a six story do you want to see a seven story like because at the end of the day like if we could if we could add a story and, and i hope this isn't my main quote here because it's not going to come across great without the context but if we could add a story which adds that requisite amount of profit which allows us to then invest five percent or some percentage, material percentage of our project budget back into the community, then the benefit that that can provide, I think, is 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 a hundredfold. I'll say to the detriment that that extra story is going to to have, which is immaterial. So, um, anyway, we're getting a better responses, I think, by just going and making sure we're engaging the community early in the process, and so it's not maybe. Yeah, we're trying and we're getting some success, I guess. Um, I think we've we've talked a bit about. I think the biggest the, the biggest thing that I dislike about our industry is the inability to do quality retail at grade. And if we had done that better, then people would dislike condos so much so yeah. much less, right? Yep. I'm like, you're, you're fighting a, a ten story building in a neighborhood because I'm losing that Caribbean restaurant that I went to. I'm yeah. like. 
come on, you're adding all these homes to people. You're adding all these jobs. If we could just do retail that people really liked with the awnings and the setbacks and just gave up some GFA, yeah, right, yeah. and didn't have to get TD or Subway yes. or 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 yes. uh, coffee shop, uh, Starbucks, right? Couldn't if we could just do more. some neighborhood style retail and smaller. Th- that would be make such a an immense difference to our to our industry, right? So uh, happy you're saying that because yes, I we couldn't agree more. Like it's a huge part of our each one of our projects we have planned not to attract the type of retail rents that those groups you mentioned bring to the table we have modeled in mom pop rents on our retail um, stretches at all of our projects to give us the 100% flexibility to bring in neighborhood uh, businesses without hurting our performa, you know? So we're not sitting there going, ah, oh, we have to hold out until we get, you know, Rexall. Uh, we're, we have it planned, I think, even lower than, you know, the local businesses can afford so that we can bring in those style businesses. And I want to kind of keep the format, the, the, we have a one project on Gerard, a new one with a couple hundred feet of frontage. And so we are going to kind of keep the um, store width reasonable as well. Like if not exactly the way that it's always been. In, nice. In, you know, and, That's cool. And this is, yeah, this is to drive the experience for the tenant. Like we would love to see um, nine businesses open up in there. And those nine businesses are providing a variety of different services for the people in the community and the people in that building. And, um, we don't really see the value in the grocery store. I mean, grocery store might be the one exception where everybody kind of wants a grocery store, but we'd rather let someone else do that. Let someone else who specializes in, um, that type of retail, make that happen when it's appropriate. Cause when a grocery store is needed in a community, you can pretty much guarantee somebody in that sphere of real estate is going to make it happen. Cause it's going to be very profitable and it's going to make sense. We don't need to be those people. And, um, I'm surprised they haven't put a grocery store at the corner of King and river yet. That empty retail space and, uh, like that, the big one on the historic court. looking one. No, in the, in the condo, the the, the Capital City. building. Yeah, the Capital, right? Yeah, it's right, a big space. Right across from the uh, Tim Hortons, it's been empty for years. Oh, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I mean, know that, that's, that's perfect for grocery. It's just perfect for so many things. I know, I know. Yeah, I it's interesting. Like, we, uh, I mean, Steve was was telling me about a client of his, and uh, he has a lot of similar views as as you do, and but he's had some of his investors say, "Hey, you know, like." ESG, sustainability, environmentalism, all that stuff, great. But I could put my money somewhere else and make more. Yeah. Like, how do your investors view your, your... Are you aligning yourself with investors that have the same same view, or, or, or how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, we want our investors to adopt this view because it's the right thing to do, and it is equally profitable. It's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a choice, you know, do the right thing for people and the environment and or be profitable it isn't at all actually if you focus all your attention on the profit you'll you'll end up hurting yourself because you're not keeping up with just the requirements of the changing world in which we live you know people care about these things and who who creates the value right the tenants who actually occupy your space create the value so if the tenants who occupy the space create the value have certain values 
it follows that you you need to be aligned in values with them or they're not going to choose to give you their money, right? Or they're not going to choose to occupy your space. There, there, there are options out there. And COVID's been a good example of we have leased up our buildings still um, at the rates in which we had projected to prior to COVID, slowly, but we still have. But we credit that to like our team and the value system and constantly um, telling everybody who's like coming to look at our properties about our value system and trying to treat them at, at like the highest level of customer service. I mean, we're still like figuring that part out. Like we've just launched Percy property management because we needed to take that on to be sure that we were caring for our tenants from the very beginning to the very end in the way that we see fit. So it's like a bit tough to yeah. do it right from the get-go because yeah. you, you know, you're short staffed, but, but the care is there. The intent is there. Um, so, and then the other thing, sorry, go ahead. No, you go, Steve. You go, Steve. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off and I apologize, but I did it's have a terrible quick. thing you've done. You know? I think I'd like to, he's leaving right now. No, I just am curious done. about the property management uh, side of things. And then, then I guess, you guys are building a lot of rental. Is it a is it a build and hold strategy, or is it a build, stabilize and flip strategy, or a bit of both? Um, but obviously, I assume getting into the property management that is going to, yeah, you know, uh, support the the latter. It's a build and hold, you know, um, and then sell as as needed to sustain operations in the business. And yeah, that's kind of like how we've always been. We we sold all of our original projects because. We had to, uh, to return capital, build investor confidence, to learn more. You learn more when you when you go through the full cycle and restart, full cycle, restart. You just do, you learn yeah. more. Yeah. But we've learned a ton now and we want all of our projects to be held and most of our agreements with our investors reflect that. Uh, but we don't want to be involved in a project with an investor who needs or wants to sell. So there's always some flexibility there because yeah, yeah. it's just natural. Things change, people change, things happen. Um, but our view, we're building everything as if we're going to own it forever. And we're building the property management company to, we're not doing any third party management. It, we never, it's like we've never done any third party construction, although we do construct with Percy Ellis construction, all of our own projects, except for river. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a build and hold, but like with that little caveat in there that like, that's a desire. It doesn't mean we always will be able to mm-hmm. hold everything we build. Like there will potentially be needs for various reasons that yeah. uh, a property has to be liquidated to bring cash into the company and things like that. So, um, I feel like one in one in five or one in 10 will inevitably end up being sold, sold even bro. though we don't want to, um, Back to the other point, just before you yeah. very rudely cut me off. Um, <laughs> it was a test to see if you remember what we were talking about. You passed. There, this, this book, How, as I, I say to some of our investors, I don't really get questioned, honestly, on these values. I think it's pretty clear that having a good set of values translates into um, a successful company. But for anyone who sort of questions it, and it is questioned occasionally, um, I try to do my best to explain it, but I think I end up tripping over my words a bit on it because when you mm-hmm. get faced with that question directly across the table from somebody with cutting the check, it it's a little bit harder, I think, to um, go through a nice flowing explanation. So I just kind of say, look at this book, How, um, by Dove Seidman. Um, how not what and and it's 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 fairly technical it's fairly like involved read it's not like a super simple easy read but it's a really amazing book and it goes through and 
extraordinary detail as to why what you you know how you do your business is what matters in in your life more than what you do it's how you go about it more than um the end result more than what you're you're doing and uh it's definitely worth a read and I highly recommend it and it answers the question in a way better way than I ever could as to why caring about the people in your process um ends up resulting in profitability additional profitability we got we got two book recommendations out of this yeah, episode book recommendations. That, might, that might be a first <laughs> well, we're getting we're getting down to the end but yeah, uh, yeah. but i did want to ask you about something here you participated in the real estate rumble a couple years ago a charity oh, yeah. boxing event uh, is it true that you got knocked out worse than Nate Robinson in his fight with Jake Paul? That was the that's the rumor on the street. You can only be good at one thing, you know, guys. <laughs> like, so you know, I don't know. The boys from Fergus are not going to be happy with your performance in the uh, real estate rumble, or what? No, no, no. You know, it was. Uh, I think I, I might have injured a few people in that event. <laughs> I definitely recall a lot, like gold medal or two. <laughs> Uh, undefeated uh, record <laughs> with Amateur Boxing Ontario. Pretty much all the accolades you could have going Would you do so, it again? Oh, man, it's rough on the body. Um, yeah, I would do it again probably, and I would recommend it because it just like, reminded me that like real hard work is just, it's a, it's just a different thing, you know? And like the uh the discipline they kind of force you into during that time yeah it's it's amazing and then the pain that you're in constantly day after day after day and it's part of the process like they're basically like if you're not in pain all the time you're not training hard enough so you know you kind of go into training that day going i think i might have broke my hand and they kind of <laughs> like touch it feel it move it around and now nah, it's not broken like strap up let's go and then adrenaline starts going and you realize that this like ooh this big injury you had you forget about it once you kind of get into it and then you you know you remember it later on yeah yeah but you you definitely like persevere through so much like constant pain and your body's so much more resilient than you think it is and we all you know get a little cushy sitting around enjoying our lives you know feeling like, oh, I don't think I should do that. It seems like I might exert a little bit too much energy if I do that or this or, but. I know about that right now. <laughs> I know us. about that. <laughs> I do it all the time. I'm doing it like the last year I have not, but at least you can recall, I can recall that time and go, oh, wait a second. I can handle this kind of uh, stress yeah. and pain. And, and I had to cut out all my friends during that training because you have to cut something. You, you're either cutting your business, your friends, your family. Yeah. That's it. You can't do it Can't so do I it all. cut out friends and like that was kind of weird you know um, but you can you know you can survive and your friends are there for you when you're when you're back in business and back in reality so nice. lots of good learning yeah hoping our friends are still back after this whole thing's over so yeah friends in pocket <laughs> squares they'll be back don't worry yeah. yeah yeah I'll have to go to my tailor get some new suits though for the uh, larger the even larger Big Ben <laughs> <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever have it in COVID where you kind of like uh, you panic thinking oh my god I've made no effort to see my family for so long and then you kind of realize wait a sec wait no nobody has been able to see their family for so long <laughs> you, you panic you're like oh wait no they made it illegal for me to see my family <laughs> exactly. literally we'll get a ticket if I do anything social <laughs> so we usually like to add in these uh, these episodes with a little bit of rapid fire go through a couple questions basically uh, try and answer them in five words or less five no words one ever or less. does okay 
But uh, you know, I read one, then Ben reads one, and, and I'm wordy too. And yeah, I, you're wordy, oh so it's just going to be like try limit it to yes or no. Okay, I'll but, do the, my very but best. there's no yes or no questions, so that's not going to work out well for you. <laughs> uh -oh. um, anyways, we made it, we made them. Um, Steve made a lot of sports ones, but I put in some more yeah, real estate ones. Yeah, let's let Ben go first here. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the first one. So one of my clients has uh, recently started buying up single-family homes for the new uh, rental platform, getting a lot of you know press, a lot of people talking about uh, you know financialization and what are they doing to affordability. So you think, do you think having a, a decent percentage, maybe fifteen percent of rental units, uh, single-family homes uh, in the market for rent, do you think that hurts affordability? Um, whoa, I'm sorry. I just, what's the question? Like, they're, I, I don't they're, quite they're get buying it. up single family homes and renting them get, out. Uh, they're gonna, they're gonna buy up 15% of all the houses in Toronto. They're not going to, but right. that's in theory. In theory, we okay. could get to a point where 15% of the units in Canada or Ontario okay. are for rent. Do you, gotcha. think that, do you think that hurts affordability overall? Even I, though we're really, we're just really just changing the tenure from ownership yeah, to, no, to rental. I, I, I my in five words, I can't see how that could hurt affordability. I think it just provides more optionality for families uh, to rent instead of own. I don't. I don't see. I think it helps. There we go. <laughs> oh my god! It was a test. Oh no. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about how how uh, how the planning for as of right was pretty simple in a couple scenarios, <laughs> but but should should the city allow? As a right, six stories everywhere in the city, on every major—I would say everywhere in the city, but on every relatively major street or avenue. Um, yes, with um, with uh, urban design guidelines that will protect, you know, reasonably protect uh, adjacent properties, property owners, and the lifestyle of of people in and around. But yes, I, I, I do I do think I do think so. An easy one for you. <laughs> Do the least trade Mitch Barner? Do they? Yeah. No. I don't <laughs> think so either. I, no. think keep, I think they keep the core together. Yeah. Too good. Too good. So, Eglinton LRT, done by the end of uh, 2022? No clue. Absolutely no fucking. Who has anybody know these types of things? Like, do people follow this type of thing? I don't know, but if you had that's the answer, incredible. Really if it was happy. done at the end of twenty two, I'd be like, I'd be jumping for joy. There was a, there was a train. I saw a train on it. It's empty, and they were just testing it out. But no, come on. Yeah, no. There's there's some trains. Okay, here's a good one for wow. you. Does John should John Tory once he gets a haircut should he make an attempt? <laughs> Uh, a second attempt at tolls on the Toronto highways coming into the city. So into the QEW, down the 404, down the 4, 427. Like, I think the 905 is coming to the 416 should pay a toll. <laughs> Agree or disagree? <laughs> oh, wait, I was supposed uh, to give everybody, my opinion. Everybody should pay. Everybody. Not just the 905ers. Yeah, that's what I think. I really do. I like road tolls. You've got to price everything, right? Dynamic, like dynamic pricing, right? If you want to come into you the city. You said five words. I got about 5,000 words on this topic if you want to hear them. But. <laughs> Give me another five quick. Cars are a problem, and you know we need to limit the use of the automobiles so that we increase the use of feet and yeah. bikes and other modes Scooters. of transportation. And this will also force density increases in local communities and basically you know you don't need to travel long distances to live your life you can live your life in your community if the community is designed that way and there's nothing wrong with that it's got a tons of wonderful benefits so put tolls on the roads just for the sole purpose of just limiting the use of the automobile 
Hey, listen, there's a lot of people that really need the automobile for very important reasons. So that, uh, you know, I know that is a fact. And there's probably going to be one lane where it's like free for certain special needs, right? Special things. But there's there's days that I, you know, in my house, I think, man, I, I could really enjoy being in a 4,500 square foot house in Oshawa. But then I think, you know what, just couldn't do it. I need to be in a, I need the walkability. I need to be where the events are. I need to be where the action is. I need to be just in a city, right? The There's just something so dynamic about a about a city, right? That I would, ne- I just can't trade it for space, right? You can't, and so. you're not even because the cost of traveling to and from that 4,500 square foot house to all the things that you Everything need else. in your life <laughs> is equivalent to that extra. Uh, expense like it's it's not it's not as much not of a one choice one, yeah. as yeah. I think we believe it to be sometimes yeah Ben you're up I'm up okay um, this is an interesting one if you could be a developer in any other city other than Toronto which one would it be Ooh, New York if you had to move to one city in the world where would it be and why oh man New York as well yeah yeah um, for work obviously Although, that's the answer <laughs> I, well, I mean, I love New York and Boston. So James and I are like, we're on the same page here. We're just here, on the right? same page. Love it. Yeah, it's just such an incredible place with just so many people and such opportunity and so much um, ambition. And just like, it's just a wild place in the world. It's kind of like, you know, it's a little bit of the center of the universe kind of deal. And so it's just so exciting. And, um, you know, the American set of values, it's like maybe a little easier to go out there and just do things, do different things, do new things, change the rules. Oh, yeah, so, you can get an 80 story approved in eight months in New York. There it's you amazing. Go. So, you don't it, have to get pre sales either. It's, uh, you start building. Get yeah. the money. It's yeah. exciting. Just go. You know, although lately, you know, who knows? I might say something way weirder, like some kind of small town on a lake, you know, I don't know, like uh, not really, but COVID can kind of mess with your head a bit, right? So. Should Did we get, get on to mental health? What's that? Should we move on to mental health? <laughs> yeah. if you sure. Another if you, if you have a comment on it, we're, we're, we're happy to hear your, your views on mental no. health. No, yeah. comment is it's important. <laughs> that's, that's good. So uh, I'm sure you've listened to all of our guests on the Toronto Under Construction podcast, the uh, number one podcast for residential real estate in the city of Toronto. By far. No big deal. Who should we have on our? Who, should, who else should we have on our show? Who's, who's, who's someone that, uh, that says fun things says interesting things in our industry who's willing to let the tongue a little bit loose and ooh yeah we usually ask like who do you hate so we want someone to actually to ask oh, really? in this industry to hate? actually answer that question um <laughs> yeah why isn't this answer just immediately popping uh into my head um yeah so I did try to go through anatomy to get uh, to get Peter Gilden but I, I got I got ghosted so so Peter I know you're listening come on in don't duck us any longer well I mean I love I love like I love a good conversation with uh, with Peter Venetas love him he's just so fun I don't know if you know him no, no. okay um, well I can always chase him down Who's uh, he with Or what's his background Well he's like uh, He's a community engagement guy But like Got a history with like Context Streetcar um, You know He's Did some cool things Around the uh, Really cool things Around the uh, Ed Ed uh, The Honest Ed's Redevelopment Oh yeah um, That'd be cool A great approach To like 
he's a developer in terms of like he's he's a development manager he's the development management skill set but he's got this community engagement angle and he loves to talk he may be the only person i know who talks more than me um <laughs> like once he gets going yeah. you know it's like you guys will not have much to do you just let him go but Perfect. it's it's incredibly interesting and fun so i don't hate peter i like him a lot <laughs> um and yeah, he, he just came. He just comes to mind as a great personality. So beautiful, awesome. If someone wants to to look you up, you on the TikTok, you got the company website. Where where, where we got going here for you? Everything's there. You know, go to like start with PercyEllis.com, and then from there, we do quite. We're pretty active on Instagram. Um, I think you know Katie has been trying to explain to me this TikTok importance. So we, we might ha- we might have the odd thing on there. You're not getting TikTok for the company. I don't know what's going on. Twitter. We got Twitter. We kind of have. We're like really launching this social media. Yeah. I think uh, you like some of my Instagram photos every once in a while, yep. so I, yeah. I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I got to up, up my game, my Instagram game. We're just gonna keep it going up and up and up, and more people contributing. And we have like a Friday meeting called Friday Wins, where we um, an opportunity for the people on the team to share something they're proud of from the week. And the reason why is I think like you can work all week, and you can work on things that nobody knows you're working on, and nobody like it's like a bragging session really and uh we also kind of bring like uh ideas to the table at that meeting just for things that would be cool to share on social media so we're like i want to see that i want to see it out on your social media i want to see the friday wins yeah yeah we i there's some i think we did that once we did that once but uh yeah keep up we love to communicate on that and emory and i love to keep up with it and see what people are saying and it brings us like uh yeah a good amount of joy to see people engaging with us uh, on what we're doing Awesome. All right. right. Well, folks, check them out online. James, thanks so much for uh, popping by. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation. This has been great. I think we should do it again. I think this would be a, a part two of oh, James Burton. Awesome. Yeah. We, we got really to come about back when you finish the 150,000 square feet yes. uh, project and get and 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 go the missing middle guy to the to the uh, the mid rise guy. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> to the to the community guy. The yeah. Community guy. Exactly. But uh, thanks, guys, so much. Really did appreciate the invite, and no this problem. has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I'd love to do it again. Yeah, we will for sure.